How many of you like change? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, nobody, nobody likes change. Right? Change is uh, kind of scary. Change is risky. It's uncertain. And let's be honest, change often means hard work is around the bend, right? I mean, if I'm going to change, that means I have to give up something that I like, something I'm familiar with and comfortable with in order to learn something new. How many of us honestly like to learn new things? Yeah. Not very many of us. It's a challenge. But change is necessary, isn't it? Change is inevitable. Change is just a part of life. We can resist it, but it's always going to be a part of our lives. For instance, parenting. Okay, Parenting an eight-year-old is different from parenting a toddler, isn't it? Yeah, you have to adapt the way you parent. You have to change. And then as they become a preteen and a teenager, guess what? You have to change again. The way you parent has to adapt. And then when your child becomes an adult themselves, again, the way you relate to your child changes. So even in parenting, change is inevitable. But we are so resistant to change, even though it's a daily reality in our lives. And I got to thinking about why that might be. Maybe it's because we get confused or uncertain about the change. Maybe it's because we feel out of control when things begin to change. I think a big part of change is we don't, we don't like to be uncomfortable. We like to be comfortable. We like to have our favorite place to sit in the worship center, right? Yeah? Your favorite pew. I can pretty much know where everybody in here is going to sit every Sunday. We like to sit in the same place, don't we? Reminds me of a story I heard about a couple that loved to come in. They'd slip in right as the service started. They'd slip out right before it ended, and they loved to sit in the back pew. But they came in one Sunday morning, and the back pew was full. And so they awkwardly made their way down towards the front of the sanctuary and sat down. And the couple next to them, being very friendly and helpful, welcomed them to church and said, Where are you all from? They said, We're from the back pew. We don't like to change. And I think probably the greatest reason we resist change is fear. On June the 4th, 1783, at the market square of a French village not far from Paris, a smoky bonfire was raised up on a platform, fed by wet straw and old wool rags, and tethered above it, straining its lines, was a huge taffeta bag 33 feet in diameter. And in the presence of a great cheering crowd, the balloon was cut from its moorings and set free to majestically rise into the noon sky. 6,000 feet into the air it went. It was the first public ascent of a balloon, the first step in the human history of flight. And it came to earth. It landed several miles away in a field where it was promptly attacked by pitchfork-waving peasants and torn to pieces as an instrument of evil. People fear change. We fear what we don't understand. Change by its very nature is hard to understand. One person put it this way, change is the process by which the future invades our lives. Well, the early church it wasn't very different from us. They suffered from an innate resistance to new ideas and new ways of doing things and new people. But the very purpose and mission Jesus gave His church is all about change. Jesus said that the church would begin in Jerusalem and then it would go out into the rest of Judea and then even to Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. And so with every new believer, the church experienced rapid and expansive change. 
I mean, Samaritans are in the church now? That's a big change. What, Gentiles are in the church now? Man, that's a radically big change. And the change wasn't warmly welcomed because the Jerusalem church hadn't fully appreciated God's mission. They hadn't fully embraced God's vision for the church. They had a narrow vision of the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 11 and verses 1 through 3. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts 11... It says, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. That means non-Jewish folk. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, and I know it's hard to believe this happens in churches, they criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So we see here the narrow vision that the church in Jerusalem had. I mean, here the the leaders of the church are asking Peter, what have you done? We've never done it that way before. Just think about it. In a short period of time, how long has the church been around? Not long. Maybe a few years at this point. And in a short period of time, the Jerusalem church has already got comfortable with their methods, with their way of doing it, with their familiar traditions. Peter was pitting God's vision against the way we've always done it. And how would they respond to this new vision? How would they respond to this change that Peter was kind of forcing them into? This is what happens when churches, when organizations, companies even, when, when, when people lose sight of the mission. great example of that is the company Kodak. You guys remember Kodak? Yeah, what happened to Kodak? The photography giant declared bankruptcy in 2012. I was surprised. I looked it up. I was surprised they're still a company. I've never heard, heard of, you know, or seen Kodak anything in forever. But by most uh, standards, they're a shell of the former company they were. So what happened to them? Did people stop taking pictures? <laughs> no. In fact, by 2000, we, are ta- we were taking about 86 billion photos a year. By the year 2000. It's estimated that in 2017, I couldn't find numbers for 2018. In 2017, it's estimated that humanity took 1.2 trillion photos. A lot of those are on some of your phones here this morning, aren't they? Yeah. And, and 10% of the photos who, that have ever been taken in, in all of history, 10% of them were taken in the last 12 months. So people are still taking pictures, aren't they? So what happened to Kodak? Well, when the digital photography came along in the early 2000s, the company couldn't keep up. Today, over 85% of all pictures are taken on one of these. 85%. See, Kodak failed to understand their mission. They thought they were in the film business instead of thinking they were in the photography business. They didn't understand that film was just a method. Taking great pictures should have been their mission. The church can be guilty of the same thing. We can confuse our methods with the mission, can't we? When our world around us changes... 
And churches say, we've never done it that way before. It's like a death sentence. See, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus. Disciples who love God, who love others, and who are going out together into the world to make more disciples. Everything else that isn't that, everything else is methodology. Hear me say that again. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus who love God, love each other, and are themselves making disciples. Everything else we do is methodology. See, the Jerusalem church should have been praising God and rejoicing over the news that these Gentile believers had put their faith in Christ. Instead, they responded with criticism. And they objected to any change in their religious traditions. Like the vast majority of churches in North America, I believe one of the reasons for our church's decline over the last 30 years is that we've allowed our vision to be narrowed by our culture, our traditions, our preferences, and our comfort. And that's why the Strategic Revitalization Team has proposed a reframed vision. It was proposed last Sunday night. I'm going to recap it at the end of this message. But it's a vision that I believe is built upon God's worldwide vision for His church. Not, not the narrow vision that churches can tend to have of themselves. It's based on God's worldwide vision for His church. And we see that in, in verses 4 through 18. We see God reveal His vision for the church as Peter addresses the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Just look at verse 4. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it happened. Peter explained how a church can discern God's wider vision for them. And it's important for us to understand and follow this biblical process because we're not proposing change just for the sake of change. That usually doesn't end well, does it? We don't want to just change for the sake of change. It needs to flow from the heart of God, through the Spirit of God, to the people of God, and be consistent with the Word of God. That's what we're talking about this morning. And Acts 11 demonstrates how God reveals His vision to the church. God reveals His vision to the church, first and foremost, through prayer. Look at verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. Tom Rainer explains in Breakout Churches what a vision is. He says that a church's vision is the intersection of that church's passions and gifts with the needs of the community around it. Nehemiah in the Old Testament learned of a great need in Jerusalem, that its walls and its gates had been torn down. Nehemiah 11.4 says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah knew his gifts and passions. He learned of a great need. He took them to God in prayer. And then God revealed to him a vision for what he wanted Nehemiah to do to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. Prayer is critical for vision development because prayer helps us look outward and see people's needs. It helps us look inward and see our passion and gifts. Prayer helps us look upward to see God's heart for a lost world. Prayer keeps us in an expectant mode so that when God is ready to move, our eyes and ears are open to see Him move so we can join Him. 
And this is why your revitalization team kept prayer front and center throughout this whole process. We prayed constantly. We all had prayer partners. We asked you as a church to pray. We prayed together many times. And I hope that we'll continue to pray. We need to pray every day that God would continually keep His fresh vision in front of us and guide our church and guide us in our spiritual walks every single day. Amen? Prayer isn't just a one-time thing you do when you're done. As Paul said, pray without ceasing. Secondly, how we discover God's vision is through God's Word. Look with me in verses 7, 9, and 16. As Peter recounts this story, he mentions God's Word three times. In verse 7, he says, Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And then in verse 9, The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then he says in verse 10, this actually happened three times. And then in verse 16, it says, Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So not only does, does Peter hear God's words spoken to him three times, but he also remembers the words of Jesus. God's Word must be the foundation of of our vision, because God's vision for His church will never contradict what He has already revealed in Scripture. And once again, the revitalization team has kept God's Word front and center through this process. We opened every single meeting with a devotional from God's Word. We made sure that our missional mandate is basically the great commandments and the great commission. It comes straight from God's Word. We made sure that every value that we proposed was scripturally based, was biblically faithful. And and if you haven't noticed, I've been preaching pretty much all year on what kind of church God would have us to be. What is God's vision for this church? Prayer and God's Word are, are essential to knowing God's vision. And so is God's Spirit. Look at verses 12 and 15. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with these men that had come uh, from Cornelius' house, a Roman, a Gentile. These men had come and asked Peter to come to Cornelius' house. And he says, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. And then again in verse 15, once he's there in Cornelius' house, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning, at the day of Pentecost. So we see the Holy Spirit at work through this entire episode. Now, you probably think it goes without saying, but the Spirit is the one who guides our prayers. The Spirit is the one who illuminates God's Word. The Spirit is the one who affirms God's vision. He is vital to this process. Paul said that it is only by the Spirit of God that we can know the mind of God. God's Spirit must be at work in this, if it's to make any difference. And often, God's Spirit speaks and affirms His vision through the next element that we need, and that is God's people. God's people, the church, you. Look down at verse 18. So Peter has explained the story about how he went to Cornelius' house and he preached the gospel and these Gentiles were saved and the Spirit came upon them and then in, in accordance with what Jesus taught, he baptized them. So Peter's explained this story, and it says in verse 18, when the leaders of the church heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. 
See, the vision must become the church's vision. It wasn't enough for just Peter alone to believe the Gentiles had been saved. The church of Jerusalem had to believe that and affirm that as well. They first had to be open to the idea that they didn't know everything. They didn't have all the answers. They had to be open to the fact that God is up to something new. God does new things. And that Jesus, not them, Jesus is the head of the church and He can decide who He's going to put a spirit on or not, right? We also have to possess a willingness to be open to God doing something new. This new vision required the early church to give up the notion that Jesus was just for the Jews. They had to welcome people with different backgrounds and traditions and cultures into their fellowship. See, God's worldwide mission for the church is to make disciples of all nations. And God's worldwide strategy for the church includes each of us beginning where we are and going out to the ends of the earth. The early church embraced that vision. They changed their strategy from this point on. The question for us, will we embrace God's vision for our church? Are we willing to change our strategies, our programs, our methods for the sake of reaching people around us and people around the world. And if we are going to follow Jesus and experience the fulfillment of His vision for us, it's going to probably mean we're going to have to leave behind a few traditions, change a few methods, add some new programs. And whatever the present cost might be, I believe the long-term and eternal dividends will be worth it. So the last thing we see here is what happens when the church embraces God's vision. We see that there in verse 18. A brief glimpse of the Jerusalem church's growth as they accepted God's vision, as they praised Him for it, and they embraced their new Gentile brothers and sisters. We see that a church that embraces God's vision is a church that first of all praises God for His grace at work in the world. It says that they heard what Peter said, they had no further objections, and they praised God. And then they welcomed new believers into their fellowship. When we embrace God's vision for the church, we will rejoice. We will praise Him as we see Him tearing down walls, as we see Him changing lives, as we see Him doing the, the, the amazing in people's lives and making and multiplying disciples. That's what we're going to discover. We will praise Him even as we may have to make personal sacrifices, even as we may have to change our preferences or let go of the past or learn something new. Again, I believe that the price of that change is nothing compared to the dividend of making disciples. Change is essential for growth. You can't journey with God and stay the same. The Christian life is a journey with God, and God is always on the move. He's always asking us to leave behind the familiar for the unfamiliar, the comfortable for the costly, what we know for what only He can see. And that's why we have to have faith and trust our Good Shepherd as He leads us down the right paths for His namesake. Now, don't get me wrong. Some traditions and methods that are, that are biblical can be good. They can be helpful. They can keep us rooted. But we've got to be careful to ensure that our traditions, methods, and programs don't get in the way of God's will for us. 
As the world changes around us, as people's needs change around us, we've got to adapt our methods, our strategies, our ministries so that we can be real and relevant and impactful in the the lives of the people around us. God's always doing a new thing. What's He doing new in our church? In our community? What's He doing in your life today? That's what the strategic revitalization team has been wrestling with and praying about and considering. And last Sunday night we presented a vision frame and a strategy for implementing this frame in our church over the next two years. So allow me to briefly recap what we believe to be God's vision for our church. It begins with asking the question about identity. Who are we as a church? If you remember how Jesus addressed the churches in Revelation as we did that study Every single sermon I pointed out how Jesus addressed each church in a unique way because every church had a unique identity. Every church had a unique personality. They had unique needs and strengths and weaknesses. And the same is true for our church. And so our revitalization team prayed and worked hard to discern how God has shaped us and how God is shaping us for tomorrow. And what we determined was that we are a multi-generational church with a heart for the next generation. This is our unique God-given kingdom concept based on our church's history, based on the needs of our community. If you were here last week, you heard Dr. Steve Parr's statistics. You've heard me mention the statistics. You know how we're losing the war for the hearts and minds and souls of the next generation. You know how much our children and young people in this community are struggling. So we believe that God has placed us here and now for such a time and such a place as this. We're a multi-generational church with a heart for reaching the next generation. And then we moved on to the question of what are we to do? What is our mission as a church? Now, I preached on this a few weeks ago. Our missional mandate really should basically be the same for every true New Testament church. Jesus laid this out for us already in the Bible through the Great Commandments and the Great Commission. Our mission is clear. Loving God, loving people, and making disciples of Jesus from all generations. Worshiping our Lord. Being together in true biblical community. Koinonia fellowship as the family of God. And then together reaching out to our neighbors and the nations to make disciples. That is our calling. That is our mission. Then we ask the question, well, how and why are we going to do that mission? What are our values? See, values define how we're going to work to accomplish our mission. Values are shared convictions that guide the way we do things, how we act. They reveal our strengths. Let me illustrate the difference between mission and values by pointing to John F. Kennedy's challenge in the early 60s uh, for our nation to put a man on the moon. And did you know that this July 20th is the 50th anniversary of that landing? The Apollo 11 moon landing? I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. But in his vision for this historic endeavor, President Kennedy, Kennedy both spelled out the mission, but he also revealed some values. Okay, so here's the mission. He said, we will land a man on the moon in this decade. All right, so what's the mission? Land a man on the moon in this decade, right? He gave a time frame, okay? It's a measurable thing. We, we, we can know if we're being successful. Have we landed a moon 
uh, landed a moon. Have we landed a man on the moon at the end of the decade? Okay, yes, then you've been successful. But then he revealed some values because he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, we're going to land a man on the moon, whatever the cost. It's not what he said. He said, we will land a man on the moon in this decade. We do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. We will safely land a man on the moon and safely return him back to earth. Do you see the values there? He expressed the values of hard work. He expressed the values of safety. The value of the sanctity of human life. That these astronauts weren't going to be expendable. The goal was to safely land them and safely bring them home. He, he laid out how they were going to go about their mission. That's what values do. Our values are biblical. I plan on preaching on them this summer should the church approve of this proposal today uh, to help us better understand and embrace these values. There's eight of them. The first is that we are biblically faithful, meaning we are going to proclaim God's Word with integrity, authority, and clarity. We're authentically worshiping, which means that we worship God in spirit and truth both, both personally and together. We're prayer dependent. We're depending daily on the Spirit for wisdom and strength. We're missionally engaged. We're reaching our neighbors and the nations for Jesus. Compassionately serving. We're sharing the gospel as we meet physical and spiritual needs. We're family affirming. Helping families grow strong, but also helping people find family in Christ. Church doesn't, the church isn't just like a family. We want to be a family. Relationally centered. Going the extra mile so people know they are loved and that they matter. And we're people empowering. Helping people know and live out their gifts and strengths on mission. Now some of these values are actual values. They communicate how our church presently works and functions. Some of them are aspirational values. They're areas that we know we need to focus on and improve and build upon. But these are our values. And then there's our measures. When do we know that we're successful? Now, I'm going to jump ahead of the strategy, the discipleship process, because I think we first need to know at what target we're aiming. Right? What is our target? What's the bullseye that we're shooting for as a church? When can we say we're successful at fulfilling our mission and embodying our values? It's when we're making disciples who think, act, and can be more like Jesus. Again, I preached on this a few weeks ago. Remember, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He outlined three dimensions of discipleship. Our heads, we, how we think and, and the decision we make with our minds to follow him. And then our hearts, as he makes us, he transforms us and shapes us more into his image. Fishers of men, what we do with our hands and our feet. The things that we do for Jesus. So we're proposing these as three broad categories of discipleship. Are we becoming disciples who are thinking, acting, and being more like Jesus? Do we believe the truths of Jesus? Do we embody the values of Jesus? Are we involved in following the example of Jesus in the things that we do? Now, beyond these broad categories, the revitalization team also identified nine core competencies in, in each of these. And those nine competencies were then subdivided along the lines of our mission. Love God, love people, serve the world. So you get this sort of grid. And you can see, you know, what are the things I need to think 
like Jesus in when it comes to loving God or loving people or making disciples. And you can see three in each of those categories. What three values do I need to embody if I'm going to love God like Jesus, if I'm going to love people like Jesus, if I'm going to make disciples like Jesus, what are the values I need to embody? What are the things I need to do? How do I need to act like Jesus when I love God? How do I need to act like Jesus when I love people or when I make disciples? And you can think of this, this chart up here like a scorecard. And you, and you can ask yourself, say, which of these am I batting a thousand on? Which of these am I striking out on? This can be an assessment tool to help you every year, every month, pick a, a value that you want to embody better. Pick a truth that you want to understand better and you want to study. Pick a practice that you want to incorporate more and more into your life. This can give powerful, intentional direction to our spiritual walks. It gives us some things to aim for as we navigate our life within the church and with our family and with God. These are the measures. These are the kinds of disciples our church wants to make. And then the, the last part is our strategy. How then do we make these kinds of disciples? See, discipleship is a journey. It's a process, a pathway. There's movement and direction in following Jesus. We want to make sure that the programs, the ministries, the activities of this church are moving you along that path in an intentional, directed way. Far too often, church ministries and programs can seem random and haphazard. Just kind of a shotgun-in-the-dark approach. Oh, we offer all this stuff, but why? Why should I do this? Why should I be a part of that? What purpose does that serve? And so we don't need to do that. We don't need these programs and ministries to be disconnected from each other and from our mission. They need to be aligned. They need to be focused around loving God, loving people, and making disciples who are going to think, act, and be like Jesus. And we believe the clear biblical pattern of making disciples follows four simple New Testament commands. The first is that we come together in worship. We worship God personally, yes, but we also come together corporately as the church to worship God. The second, we grow spiritually, yes, by our own spiritual walk and private personal devotions, but, but we also grow together in a group, in a loving community of fellow believers who are going to support us and hold us accountable and encourage us. Number three, serve in love according to how God has shaped you and gifted you. We need to regularly engage in serving others personally and through our church. And then finally, we go make disciples. We are equipped and ready to engage other people in gospel conversations that could lead them to faith in Jesus and so that we could disciple them. We want to help our church reach our neighbors and the nations. Come to worship. Grow in a group. Serve in love according to how God has shaped you. And go share the gospel and make disciples. Four simple things. We're not asking for a whole host of stuff. We're asking for those four simple things to be incorporated into our lives. We believe that in answering these key questions of identity, purpose, values, measures, and strategy lie the foundation for transforming our hearts, for transforming the way we think as a church, for changing the culture of our church so that we align with God's kingdom purpose for us. Now, in the proposal last week, we also included a two-year implementation phase to help all of our various ministries and activities and programs and church processes. We, we, it's going to take a couple of years for us to begin to align all of this 
around what we're proposing here about God's vision for our church? How is that going to impact and change what we do on a weekly basis? And so an 11-member vision implementation team will oversee seven action teams. They're going to help our church address this when it comes to worship, when it comes to our small group ministry in Sunday school, when it comes to the different ways we can serve, when it comes to how we evangelize and outreach and do missions. We're going to have teams help us with each of those areas. There's going to be an action team specifically designed to help us with our next generation ministries. Okay, that's preschool, children, youth, college students. They've got a big task ahead of them. We need a lot of folks to be part of that team. We're going to have a team that's going to help us assess our campus and facilities. How can we be the best stewards? Because one of the things our revitalization team realized is that our church is really blessed and unique in where we are on this corner in town, on this beautiful park that we have, this wonderful facility that God has blessed us. We want to make sure that we utilize it to the utmost for His glory. So that campus and facilities team will help us do that. And then a personnel team to, once again, help us assess what are our needs now and in the future when it comes to staff and how can we make sure that we are prepared for who God would lead us to next. This is what we believe is God's vision for our church. And at the end of the service, we're going to ask you to affirm and embrace that if that's how God leads you. But before we do that, I want to ask you a simple question. What is God's vision for you? God has a vision for you. That vision begins with you putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God wants you to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you this morning? If not, I invite you here in a moment to come and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe God's vision for you is for you to unite with this church. You want to come and say, I want to become a part of this church. I want to grow with this church. I want to be a part of God's vision here. We invite you to come. However God is leading you this morning, would you step out in faith? and be obedient to Him. Let's stand and let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for Your people. We thank You that through all of these, You are working to reveal Yourself to us, to direct and to guide us to be the church You would have us to be, to impact this community in a way it's never been before. So we pray You would lead us and speak to us this morning. And we pray, God, that You would speak to each and every heart. If there's anyone here that needs to put their faith in Christ, come and rededicate their lives and re-surrender themselves to your vision for them to coming out with this church, we pray they would do so. In Jesus' name.